The lesson that I've prepared this morning is one that is a part of our theme, and specifically one that is focused on the members of this church and how we work together. And so I don't often do this, but I do hope that those who are not here will find it online and listen to it. Because I do hope that it is a lesson that, that will unify us in our purpose and our intentions for this year and really in, in all things. But the theme for the year is the race that is set before us. And that comes from Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Last month, we talked about this verse as an introductory concept for all of the different lessons that we will be looking at this year. And here, the writer basically concludes the things that he talked about in chapter 11 and moves them forward into application in chapter 12 and verse 1. And he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So chapter 11 is about that great cloud of witnesses. It's the people who have gone before us, each individually living their lives in whatever unique times and circumstances and roles and responsibilities that they had by putting their faith in God. And so by their example, they are appealing to us, saying, if we did it, you can too. And so the idea is that each one of us has a race that is set before us. There are unique responsibilities and circumstances that we might find ourselves in. But regardless of the circumstances of our lives today, the choice that we must make is the same choice that they made before us to live by faith, to put our trust in God, to be citizens of a heavenly kingdom, though we live in this physical world. And so the first thing that we will focus on is a part of the race that's set before us that is true of all of us who are members of this church. What is the race that is set before us as a local church? And the way that I would like to begin to look at this idea is to think about what the purpose is of a local church. In many ways, our purpose as a local church, a group of people meeting together here in Lawrenceville, Georgia in 2024, is actually very parallel to the purpose of the church in a universal sense. You know, sometimes the Bible talks about the church as being all of God's people of all time, across time and space, and sometimes it talks about a church as being a local group of people. And as we think about our roles and responsibilities and goals as a local church, it really has everything to do with what the Lord's purpose is for the church in a universal, global sense. And Paul talks about that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. As he writes to Timothy, who is in Ephesus at the time, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. 
And so here, Paul calls the church a pillar and buttress of the truth. If you think about like old cathedrals or Gothic architecture, where there are columns that support the roof, and then there are those arching buttresses that hold the structure in place. That's the idea. The New American Standard calls it the pillar and support of the truth. I also like the way the New Living Version reads right here, where it says, the church holds up the truth. That's a pretty staggering responsibility when you think about it. That God has chosen the church. God has chosen his people to be like the pedestal that holds up the truth for all of the world to see and to behold. And it has a lot to do with our behavior and our conduct. That's pretty staggering. God has entrusted us with lifting up the truth and making it known to the world by our words and our actions. And the race that's set before us today is no less than that. We meet together a few times a week and we join our voices in song and we do the things that churches do, but this is why. And this is what we need to be pursuing more and more. So how do we do that? Well, in order to answer that question, I'd like to look at Revelation chapters 2 and 3. If you've ever studied Revelation before, you know that chapter 1 is sort of like an extended introduction to the book. And then in chapters 2 and 3, there are these letters from Jesus to seven different churches in an area known as Asia or Asia Minor. And each one of these seven letters to these seven churches follows the same basic pattern. Each is introduced with, to the angel of the church in wherever, right? The words of, and then there is some description of Jesus, uh, usually very poetic and metaphorical. But then every letter begins after that with Jesus saying, I know. Seven different times he says, I know, I know, I know. And he goes on to tell these churches what he knows about them, whether that's good things or bad things. And so my thought was, well, we should just be able to go through these seven letters and look at what Jesus says to those churches and come up with a list of things that he would expect of us today. What is his expectation for local churches in general, and how would that apply to us specifically? And as I started to go through that process, I actually realized uh, all of the things that I came up with fit neatly into three categories. So it's not so much a list of things that I have for you this morning, but three categories of expectations that Jesus has for local churches and, and for us specifically. And so what I want to do is look at some verses in Revelation 2 and 3, consider these ideas with you, and as best we can, relate them to our circumstances here and make this lesson specific to us. And so the first category of expectations that I see <clears throat> is that Jesus expects for local churches to have doctrinal and moral purity. And really, those two ideas are very closely related because what we believe and what we teach and what we say will have a very direct impact on the way that we think and the way that we live. And so doctrinal and moral purity are very closely connected. If you look in Revelation chapter 2, in verse 2, 
Look at what he says to Ephesus. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So notice that Ephesus is praised by Jesus for not bearing with people that they have tested and found to be false. They had some people that came and started to teach some things that didn't sound quite right to them, and so they tested the teaching by comparing it with the truth. And when the teaching didn't line up with the truth, they rejected the false teaching. And Jesus says that's a good thing. That's what you ought to be doing. If you look down in verse 14, look at what he says to the church in Pergamum. In verse 14, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. You notice here that Pergamum isn't so keen as Ephesus is. Ephesus has done a good job of fielding that false teaching and rejecting it, but Pergamum has put up with some, and there are some things that Jesus even names. We don't know exactly who the Nicolaitans were or who this Balaam is, but Jesus is referencing things that they would know about. In the Old Testament, Balaam was a false prophet. In Numbers chapters 22 through 25, and then also in Numbers 31, it was when the people of Israel were out in the wilderness, and Balaam was this false prophet who tried to curse the people of Israel, and remember, the Lord prevented him from being able to speak curses. And so what he actually ends up doing is deciding that he has a better idea. He'll cause the people of Israel to bring curses on themselves. And so he causes them to be seduced by Midianite women. And when they sinned with them, Israel brought a plague on themselves. And so Jesus is warning the church in Pergamum. He's saying, your false teaching is resulting in sinful behavior. And if you don't get it under control, you will bring a curse on yourselves. Now, he mentions the teaching of the Nicolaitans in verse 15. You might connect that back up to verse 6. In verse 6, this is to Ephesus. He says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so again, teaching and works are connected. Doctrinal and moral purity are connected. Go down to verse 20. Look at what he says to the church in Thyatira. In verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, 
and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. You notice that there's another element here in Thyatira. Not only is there the group responsibility for them to reject the false teaching like Ephesus and really the group uh, problem that's going on in Pergamum, but in Thyatira there are some people who are not going along with all the other stuff. And what Jesus tells them is to hold fast to the truth. And then finally, look in chapter 3. Look at what he says to Sardis. It's really along the same lines in verses 3 and 4. He says, Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So again, he encourages those in Sardis who have not gotten caught up in the false teaching and in the sinful living to maintain their purity and their commitment to the truth. And despite what people might be doing around them individually, they need to be faithful. You know, we have a lot of ongoing discussion here about various doctrinal and moral questions. And I just want to say, I think that's really good. I see people who come to each other and discuss things after Bible class and after worship. I see the conversations where sometimes it's two people or a group of people. Sometimes we even have more private conversations with each other. Maybe those happen over the phone or over email or even in person. And again, that's a good thing. Because what that means is that we care about what's true. We care about what's right and wrong. We care when we hear something that doesn't sound exactly the way that we think that it should sound. And so what we do is we have conversations about it. And we keep looking to God's word. And we keep reasoning with each other. And we keep helping each other to have a better and clearer view of the truth. Really, the moment that we stop caring is the moment that we should be worried. And so doctrinal and moral purity is exactly what we ought to be pursuing here. That is the race that is set before us, as Jesus would tell us. And that is something that I believe that we are doing and we ought to keep doing more and more. In a spirit of humility, in a spirit of gentleness, in a spirit of love for one another and for the truth of God's word, we keep having those conversations so that we can understand God's will for us more and more. But a second category of things that Jesus expects from local churches is things that have to do with zealous love. Look at Ephesus again in chapter 2. In Revelation 2 and verse 4, he says, But I have this against you 
that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. That's actually almost the exact opposite situation in Thyatira. In verse 19, he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. It's really interesting to me how Ephesus and Thyatira are almost mirror images of each other. Ephesus does a really good job at maintaining doctrinal purity and rooting out false teaching, but Jesus says you're starting to lose track of what this is all about. You need to remember where you have fallen from. Remember the works that you did at first. Remember the love that you had for God and for his word and for Jesus and for his people and even for the lost. You need to love each other zealously. But to Thyatira, he says, look, you need to be careful about the kinds of teaching that you're allowing. But I will say this. You keep loving each other more and more. And that's good. You think about Sardis in chapter 3. In chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Jesus is letting the brethren there know that he sees through any facade of love that they might have. You know, sometimes we can have the reputation of being alive, but actually be dead. We can put on a good face, and we can smile, and we can be friendly, but when we really think about the way that we're living, there's not a lot of love that we can really put our fingers on. And Jesus says, I can see through that. It doesn't really matter what other people think. I know the truth. But normally, when we think about problems with zeal, we think about Laodicea. So I'd like to spend a few minutes there. Look in chapter 3 and verse 15. To the church in Laodicea, Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. The thing I love about Jesus' words to Laodicea is that he identifies their problem, but he also challenges them to respond to it. You know, it's uncomfortable when somebody helps you see that you're not all that you could be. 
It's easy to feel threatened. It's easy to be upset. And Jesus says, you think that you are doing everything that you ought to be doing and you're focused on the things you ought to be focused on, but the reality is, you've got a long way to go. So be zealous and repent. When I read all of these verses on this subject, it really gives me the impression that God cares about our love for him and for each other. Like, God really wants us to get into it. He doesn't want us to just go through the motions. He doesn't want us to just, you know, be able to check off all the right boxes. He wants this to be something that erupts out of our heart, flows out of our soul, and consumes the way that we live. That's what zealous love is like. He wants us to be excited about the opportunities that we have to encourage each other. He wants us to bring some energy to our service. I'll tell you what I love to see. I love it when I see people doing nice things for each other without being asked to do them. You know, sometimes people will bring some small gift that they know is meaningful for somebody else, or have a card, or invite somebody to go somewhere, or give them a ride. And it's not something that they have to have their arm twisted to do, but it's because they saw a need, and they just acted on it. I love it when people get the idea to organize a gathering somewhere, so that we can share our lives more and more. Whether it's making the effort to reserve a pavilion somewhere, or just saying, we're going to open up our home for people to come over, to share a meal, to sing, that's encouraging. I love it when people are present for Bible studies and worship. I love it when I see people making the effort to be here and encourage their brethren. I love it when people get here early. I could do a better job of that. <laughs> I also like it when people stay late. And I do a pretty good job of that one. But you think about all of the ways that we would express zealous love for each other. And it's this idea that we're not just thinking about what the minimum is. We're not just thinking about what do we have to do so that the elders won't come talk to us and say, hey, I've noticed, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, we're just eagerly looking for ways to help. That's the kind of thing that Jesus wants. What about in being identified as a member? You know, there's a lot of people that come here pretty regularly and have never talked to the elders about wanting to be identified as a member. I think in some cases, that's because maybe you just didn't realize, like, that's a thing that we do, so now you know that's a thing that we do. But if that's something you've been putting off, then talk to the elders about it. How much more helpful would you be? And how much, helpful, how much help would that bring to the work that we're trying to do together if you said, I would like to be identified as a member here? Zealous love makes us quick to help each other, to respond to each other's needs, to give rides, to provide meals, to help move. It expresses itself in leading services, in preaching sermons, in teaching classes, in preparing Bible class material, 
cleaning the building, preparing communion, talking to others about the gospel, inviting them to, to, to come and to be here with us. And so many of you do so many of those things so well already. But most of us could do more. And so let's think about the race that is set before us as a local church and the practical ways we can grow in zealous love for God, our brethren, and the world around us. But then the third category is patient endurance. You might have noticed how over and over again Jesus is encouraging these churches in whatever challenges that they might be dealing with to patiently endure the hardship and the discomfort. To Ephesus in chapter 2, in verse 2, he talks about their patient endurance. In chapter 2, in verse 10, to Smyrna, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. In verse 13, to Pergamum, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. In verse 19, to Thyatira, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. In verse 25, he goes on to say, only hold Fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And then finally, look at what he says to Philadelphia in verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Churches will encounter adversity. Sometimes that comes in the form of persecution or loss or physical illness or death. Sometimes it's disappointment or frustration or heartbreak. But whatever the difficulty is, what is it that you think Jesus wants us to do? To hold fast. To patiently endure. You know, this church has had some big ups and downs over the years. A lot of them predate me being here, but they are still hard things to deal with. And there's still challenges and difficulties, uphill battles that we have to fight. I've been in some hard meetings with people where there's been friction and tension. I've seen more deaths here than I can count on one hand in the past three years. I've seen people come and I've seen people go. I've been sad when we've lost friends and when we've lost workers. Those things can be really discouraging. But Jesus would tell us to hold fast, to patiently endure, 
to not grow weary of doing good, but to do all that we can do and trust him that he will take care of us and he will provide for us. Whatever challenges we encounter, they are simply a part of the race that is set before us. As I was thinking about all of these goals and how we might come together in pursuing them and encourage each other to challenge each other in all of these ways, I thought about how all of the times in the Old Testament, or I thought about a lot of the times in the Old Testament when Israel would come together to dedicate themselves to doing the will of God. Some of the most powerful moments in the Old Testament are when the whole community would come together and they would declare in one voice, we will serve the Lord. We will dedicate ourselves to his will in our lives. I thought about Moses at Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 24, when Moses confirmed the covenant with the people, they responded, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, after Moses has reminded the people of the terms of the law just before his death, and they are about to enter into the promised land, he gives them the blessings and the cursings, and then he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. Then in Joshua 24, when Joshua challenges the people at the end of his life, these are some of the verses that Bill read for us at the beginning. He says, Now therefore fear the Lord your God and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And he goes on to say, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the thing that I really like about this instance is that the people respond. And they say, uh, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And then Joshua talks back and he says, you can't do it. You're not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. But the people insisted, and they responded again and said, No, but we will serve the Lord. And then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves, that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. In 2 Kings 23, remember when the high priest found the book of the law, and Josiah wanted to implement the reforms. Josiah read all of the words in the presence of all the people, and they all agreed to follow the covenant. And then finally, after the return from captivity, in Nehemiah chapter 8, remember Ezra read the book of the law in the assembly of all the people from morning until midday, and all the people stood, lifting up their hands, saying, Amen. Amen. These were powerful moments in Israel's story. These were defining moments for their identity, where they all agreed, we're going to do this for real, you know? We're not just going to be a group of people who is loosely connected, but we're going to be a group of people that is dedicated to serving the Lord together. 
I decided to try something like that with my family. I was feeling particularly inspired last Monday morning, and we created a list of family rules. The kids helped us think of all the rules, and whenever we all agreed on a rule, I wrote it down. Milo wrote the uh, heading up there at the top. And I actually made them stand together on the rug, and I read them the terms of the covenant along with the blessings and the cursings. And they all said, we will follow our family rules. And I said, no, but you can't do it. You won't do it. I don't believe you. And then they responded back and said, no, we will, we will. And it was a really cool moment as a family. So I said, you and your mother and all of the kitchen appliances are witnesses against you this day. For you have heard all of the words you have spoken. And then I hung it on the wall there. It felt good. It felt like, you know, we had really agreed on an identity as a family. We had defined our expectations of ourselves and each other. We were all in agreement about what would be who we are. And we know that we're not going to be perfect. (laughs) Some curses have fallen since last Monday (laughs) when the rules have been broken. But we've agreed that this is what we're pursuing together. It's a clear picture of what we have all agreed to become. If I could, I'd like for us to have a moment something like that as a local church. To be able to agree on what it is that will define us. To agree on what it is that we will be pursuing. That each one of us will say, yes, we will do our part because this is the will of God. And we will be dedicated to it. And so here's what I've come up with. That we will work together to magnify the truth. By earnestly pursuing doctrinal and moral purity. By zealously loving God, each other, and the world around us, and by maintaining patience in whatever adversity we face. Does that look reasonable to you? Is that something we can agree on? That we will pursue these things together, that each one of us will do our part, that we will be running with endurance the race that is set before us in pursuit of these goals. I'd like for you to stand and pray with me, if you'd like. If you feel like you can commit to this, if this is something you can agree to, I want you to stand up in front of your brethren. And we're all going to finish this lesson by saying a prayer together. And I hope that as you look around that you are encouraged by the people that have chosen to follow in this and to pursue this together. And obviously, if if you're not able to stand, we understand uh, that. But we are wanting to encourage each other by our dedication to these things. After this prayer, you can remain standing, and then we will have the invitation song in just a moment. So let's go ahead and pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you as a group of people who wants to serve you, who wants to magnify the truth of your word in everything that we say and everything that we do. And so help us to be the people that you've called us to be. 
We pray that you would purify us, that you would root out any bitterness or rebellion that's in our hearts, that you would use us to encourage each other by the things that we say and by the examples that we leave, that we would each do our part to build each other up so that we can all attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Not for us, O God. Not for us, but for your glory. We pray that you would give us the strength. We pray that you would work in us both to will and to work for your good pleasure. That others would see us shining as lights in a crooked and twisted generation. And that more and more you would use us as your tools, as people who would proclaim the excellencies of you who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We pray that you would help us to pursue moral and doctrinal purity as you have revealed it in your word. That you would help us to love each other more and more, to overflow with love for you, for our brethren, and for the lost and dying world around us. And that finally, you would help us to be patient, to endure whatever hardships we face. That when we feel discouraged about situations that we have to deal with, or when people might come or go or even die, that in all of the ups and downs, that you would give us stability and strength so that your name would be magnified in all things. We pray that you'd be with us. We pray that you would help us. We pray that you would help us each and also collectively to be dedicated and devoted to your will for us and that you would give us the strength to do it. Thank you for your son, and it's in his name that we pray this prayer. Amen. There might be somebody here who needs to make your life right with God. You have the opportunity to come and be a part of the Lord's church, to be joined to Jesus and to be joined to his body. And if you need to make your life right with God in some way, we want to be able to help you before you leave. Come to the front while we stand together and sing.